0: So yes, the reading this morning is Philippians chapter 3 verse 1 to chapter 4 verse 1. You can follow along on the screen or in the church Bibles. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold for me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which Christ has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us, then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if, on some point, you think differently, that, too, God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. This is the word of the Lord. Um, You'll see an outline of
1: where we're going uh, in your leaflet. Keep your Bibles open and let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we love you. We praise you that we can be together this day and we ask, Lord, that you teach us And thank you so much that uh, in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul opens himself up and we can glimpse something of what his relationship with Jesus is and we pray that this would be instructive for us in our own walk with you, wherever we may be. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, notwithstanding the freezing cold weather yesterday in the hills, uh, we've been reminded over the last two weeks that winters do come to an end. Uh, Spring is here and the last two weeks have been... Weeks of joy because we've been in Philippians, and Philippians is a letter of joy. And we've seen that there's joy in being partners in the gospel. And then last week we saw how Christ's own example of humility really does change the way in which we relate to one another. But today we see that behind the joy, behind the partnership, behind the change way that we relate stands something more substantial, more personal more motivating, more real, and that serves as an engine room to everything else. And that is that there is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ himself. Personal relationship with Christ. It's always been this way of those who follow Jesus. You think back to the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who, who had Jesus into his own house. You think of Bartimaeus, whose sight was restored by Jesus and ended up following him, uh, or the sinful woman who anointed Jesus' feet at the house of Simon the Pharisee, or the man who was set free from those legion of demons. All of these people were healed, they were forgiven, they were restored by God, but more of them, all of them became personally devoted to Jesus himself. Now, when someone becomes personally devoted to someone else, four things become true. First of all, they delight in knowing that person. Secondly, they don't look back. Thirdly, they look forward to getting to know that person even more. And fourthly, they get very protective about guarding the relationship they have. Four things that become true when someone becomes devoted to someone else. Each of those four things comes out in what Paul says in our reading about his own relationship with Christ. So he personally delights and rejoices in knowing Christ Jesus his Lord. He refuses to look back to the things he used to delight in. He thinks them garbage compared to knowing Jesus his Lord. He eagerly looks forward to knowing Jesus even better And then there's this fierce protectiveness and jealousy he shows against those who want to take away or threaten what he and other fellow believers have in Christ. Now, the value to us of seeing this in the Apostle Paul rather than in those very first disciples who first followed Jesus in the Gospels is that Paul is closer to us in our circumstances than they are. Not just in time, but he's closer. You see, none of us are really like them in the sense of Having seen Jesus personally and physically met him, physically felt his touch. Paul is more like us who come after those first disciples. And yes, I mean, he did meet Jesus, uh, a vision of Jesus on the Damascus Road. There's no, but there's no direct reference to a personal encounter with Jesus in the flesh. And that makes him closer to us in his experience as, as being a disciple. But even more than that, Paul is our apostle. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. And in his words, what he does, he not not only models for us what discipleship means by way of example, he tells us actually to imitate him. Verse 17, he says, Join with others in following my example, brothers. Which means we can't just pass off his testimony in this chapter as his own experience. We are to do as he does. And that makes his testimony of his own relationship with Jesus instructive for all of us. You know, even if we've never followed Jesus, if, if we've only just begun, or if we've been following him for years and maybe our initial joy has perhaps dimmed a little. Paul shows us through his own life what a personal relationship with Jesus can look like when we actually can't physically see him or interact with him, because, you know, as if he was in the same room. But this is really helpful. Uh, it's Jesus who gives Paul his joy. And so therefore I'm calling Paul's example of his own living out his personal relationship with Jesus, the practice of joy. That's what these, this chapter is about. So he begins in verse 1 by telling us to rejoice in the Lord. This is the language of devotion. Just as a a bride rejoices in in her new groom or a groom rejoices in his new bride, Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord. This is very personal. It's very relational language. It's the language of devotion. Now, maybe you've got questions. How can you command an emotion? Because don't emotions just happen? Well, don't worry about that. Paul will unpack that. And we may even pass over verse 1 as some sort of sentimental mumbo-jumbo, which it isn't. And we know it isn't. How do we know it isn't? Three reasons. First, because he's, even though he's only halfway through the letter, he, he prefaces the command to rejoice with the word finally, saying, you know, finally, rejoice in the Lord, meaning of everything that I've said, that I'll say from now on, here is the last really, really, really important thing that you need to be commanded on. Okay. Secondly, this is not the first time he's said it. He's already written to them about it and he says it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and he says it's a safeguard for you. So there's this protectiveness coming through. And thirdly, he wraps up this whole section by telling us why it's so important to cultivate the practice of joy. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says that's how you stand firm in the Lord. So the main way we're to stand firm in the Lord... And maintain a heart of ongoing devotion to the Lord is to keep rejoicing in the Lord. Meaning, celebrating, being thankful that you know the Lord, that you're in relationship with him and that by God's grace he has saved you and called you to be his disciple. Please note, rejoicing in the Lord is not something that requires you to feel joyful before you do it. That would be a misunderstanding because giving thanks doesn't require us first to feel thankful. If we had to wait until we felt in the mood, some of us would find it hard to ever rejoice in the Lord. But I've learned otherwise. Life's knocks and people who have kept standing in the Lord have taught me rejoicing in the Lord is possible to do even when you're depressed, Some of you will know Peter Adam. Peter Adam is a former principal of Ridley Bible College in Melbourne. He's a wonderful man, but throughout his life has suffered depression. And yet he has taught himself to begin each morning by being thankful to God. So each morning, and I've got a copy of his prayers that he's written out for himself, he disciplines himself to be thankful. He thanks God that though he's a sinner, God has saved him by his grace and not through anything that he himself has done. He gives thanks to God that because of Jesus' Jesus' death for him, he is completely forgiven. And he gives thanks to God that by God's grace to him through Jesus, he has become a child of God. So for Peter, Adam rejoicing in the Lord actually helps him to stand firm in the Lord. And that is why singing at church is so important for our souls, We sing the words, but when we engage our minds, we engage our hearts. And the songs then stay with us through the week, and they help us to keep singing and keep rejoicing in the Lord. Okay. If rejoicing in the Lord is how Paul lives out his relationship with Jesus, what else does it mean aside from celebrating that we already have? All right. Three things. First of all, forgetting what is behind us. By the time Paul became a disciple of Jesus on the Damascus Road, he had a very impressive religious CV. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had pedigree. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. So in addition to pedigree, he had an impressive list of his own achievements, which were well above the average. He said, as for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. Now, we may not put store in the same list of achievements, but even if we did, none of us could beat him. Of course, that doesn't stop us secretly putting confidence in our own flesh, does it? You know, what do you rely on in your heart of hearts that gives you status before God? Is it religious pedigree? You know, I came from a Trinity family. I was part of the core team that planted this church. Um, What about the things we do for God? Christian activities and ministries we're involved in, more than the average person. Uh, Our own level of financial generosity. Now, all of that can collectively breed a sense of entitlement. But, of course, there are other ways of putting confidence in the flesh, aren't there? The status markers we track our success by um, our ATAR levels, if you're just through high school, the degrees you have, your performance rewards, the commendation of the boss, the appreciation of your clients. Or perhaps it's our literal flesh, what, we, what store we put in and how we look, how we dress. We all have ways of pegging ourselves above other people. Why? Because deep down we are insecure and deep down we crave acceptance, which in the end is a craving for ultimate acceptance which can only come to us from God. And if that's what we're seeking, Paul says, if you thought that you had reason to put confidence in the flesh, I've got more. You couldn't get a more impeccable, prestigious, well-educated, zealous, earnest young Jew than younger Paul. If Forbes magazine had put out a list of the the 100 most people most likely to gain acceptance with God, he is the front page boy. I had it all, says Paul. But now, whatever was to my profit, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. It counts as nothing. Too strong? Not strong enough? He says, "Whatever is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things." Now, just so we understand and feel what he's really, really saying. Rude language alert! Right? Paul swears. The NIV tames it down and translates what Paul says as garbage. But what Paul really says is skubala. Now, if you were Greek, you'd know what I said then. Okay. That is the word for our four-letter equivalent of poo. It's in the Bible. Did you know that? I consider these things that I used to place such value in as that I may gain Christ. Now, why does he swear? He doesn't normally, and I'd like to, if you're a kid particularly, Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what builds others up. This is Paul who says that. But here is the one place in the New Testament where he swears. Okay, why does he do it? It's not so we'll snigger. It's not so that we'll roll our eyes in outrage, sort of, how could he? It's to jolt us awake. Because he knows us. He knows us. He knows how deeply worldly we are. He knows how, how much value we put in the flesh. and he know, but, but he knows also that we need to re-grasp and understand what he understands. That however much these things may stroke our egos, However much they promise us value, they are empty, they are unsatisfying, they are valueless, they cannot deliver, next to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Yesterday I went swimming with a friend. The pool opened up, it's the spring. It was cold, but anyway. (laughs) But I went swimming and... um, A guy who's been a Christian for a long while but's reached reached a juncture in his life when many of the things that used to define him have gone. So he used to be a church pastor but he can't call himself a church pastor anymore. He used to have his kids at home and define himself as a dad but his adult kids have left and he's still a dad but he doesn't really think of himself in those categories that he used to when he was younger. He's just finishing his postgraduate studies, but he's finding these very, very difficult, so he doesn't really identify himself with his academic achievements, and he knows he hasn't got what he used to have in that regard. He said all his life he's defined himself by these markers, but now those things are increasingly fading away. And what's left, who he is, he's realising can only be increasingly defined by his relationship with Christ. He knows him, and that's everything. And what that means is not just that he's forgiven, or not just that he sort of knows in a distant sense that Jesus is positive towards him. He knows Christ, which means every day he lives in grateful fellowship with Jesus as his Lord. He walks with him, and he looks forward because he knows the best is yet to come. Rejoicing in the Lord means celebrating you now know God. It means forgetting the things we used to gain our value from. And thirdly, it means strenuously pursuing what's ahead. I love this. Paul says, I know Christ, so he has Christ, right? Christ is his saviour. He is his Lord. He knows him. But then he says, I want to gain him. Why does he say he wants to gain him if he already has him? He rejoices in the present reality, but he's looking forward to the future. And that's the example he wants us to follow because he says, that's how you stand firm in the Lord. What's he mean? This year, Narell and I celebrated 26 years of marriage. And you might think, well, after 26 years, we'd have a firm marriage. That's true. But how do we stand firm in our relationship? Because marriages can still fall apart after 26 years. How do you stand firm? Well, we celebrate the relationship we're in, we forget what's behind on our anniversary, I wasn't thinking about former girlfriends, okay? I, was, I burnt those bridges long ago, forsaking all others. But having a strong marriage means I always look for, we also look forward to what's ahead. Yes, we know each other, of course, no, we don't look back, but there's a future to look forward to, new experiences to grow together in. And that gets multiplied a thousand times more for the Christian when we think about what awaits us in Christ. Paul has Christ, but he wants to gain Christ. He knows Christ, but he wants to know him more. In Christ, Paul is declared righteous before God, yet he wants that to continue so that on the day of Christ, Paul may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that's a sham righteousness, that will be exposed as inadequate, that will end up condemning him but i want to have that which is through faith in christ a righteousness that comes from god not from me from god and is by faith what else paul knows christ he wants to know him deeper i want to know christ and the power of his resurrection and even the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in his death he's not masochistic he's saying he wants to experience he's not saying he wants to experience suffering for suffering's sake He knows that when he suffers for the gospel, there is a connection, a fellowship with Jesus himself who also suffered for the gospel. And he wants to share in that. And then he wants to know the power of Christ's resurrection as Paul is strengthened to endure in the midst of suffering and to endure with thanksgiving. For Paul, he says, going through that means that I will know Christ deeper. Of course, often in the West, we miss this. We think that suffering is only ever bad, but Jesus spoke plainly. He said, it's a key part of following him. If anyone comes after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. He was very upfront. In truth, it's being part of being devoted to Jesus. You know, as a church, if we take following Jesus seriously, and if each of us are to mature as his disciples, there will be cost, there will be sacrifice, there will be inconvenience, in fact, the view that you can have fellowship with Jesus and no cost, no sacrifice, no inconvenience, that was a view certainly not held by Jesus nor by Paul. And in the end, it is a view that cuts us short, that robs us, because the pattern of discipleship is suffering now, but on the day of Christ, resurrection. Paul says, I want to know Christ And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection from the dead. That's what he's got his sights set on. That's where it's all heading. You know, that moment on Christ's return when every person who has placed their trust in Christ and has stood firm to the end will stand... And they will stand before him and they will see him face to face and he will welcome them and they will be with him. And Paul's hopes are fixed on it because he knows that salvation, which has been promised to him at that moment, it will be complete. And all the good things that God has promised for him and has in store for him, that he planned, that God planned before the beginning of time, it will all come true. And so Paul, by his own testimony, he lifts our eyes, doesn't he? To our hope. He says our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. What a hope. I hope your heart's set on it. I hope that what you're really longing for is not a glorious superannuation nest egg. Pity you if that's how low your sights are set. C.S. Lewis said our problem isn't our desire for something better, it's that we don't desire it enough. He said if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised us, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us we're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the seaside. We are far too easily pleased. Being devoted to Jesus means rejoicing in the Lord, forgetting what's behind, straining towards what's ahead, and finally comes the protective part, living the cross. He says, join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. What pattern? It was the pattern of Christ Jesus himself, who self-consciously considered others better than himself, even though he was equally God as is God the Father. And then he laid aside his rights and his comfort and any sense of entitlement and he deliberately humbled himself by becoming a man and he kept on humbling himself, we heard last week, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, which he submitted to so as to save people who think they don't deserve death but do and who think they deserve heaven but don't. Jesus set the pattern And that was the pattern lived out by Timothy who Paul speaks of in chapter 2 who genuinely looked out for the interests of Christ Jesus ahead of his own interests and Epaphroditus we heard last week who risked his life and almost died to get aid to Paul again and again. That was the pattern that Paul himself lived by. And so he tells us to take note of that pattern, the pattern of the cross and to imitate his example. Why is he so insistent? Why must we do this? Because verse 18... He says, as I've often told you before, and now say again, even with tears. And we can imagine the the parchment he was writing from in prison getting splodged as his tears fell. He says, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And he's not talking about non-Christians here. He's talking about lip service Christians who say they believe, but... They do not live for what is to come. They live for now. Their eyes are off the prize. Paul says it matters. He says their destiny is destruction. Why? Because their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their destiny is destruction. That's why it matters so much. Why is their destiny destruction? Because what what we live for now becomes our God. God. And because they love this life more than Christ, therefore their God is their stomach. And when you think about it, doesn't that describe Australian life to a T? But because Paul knows that the riches of knowing Christ are better, and because he can therefore uh, glimpse the glory of the resurrection, he's like a protective mother Who warns her children in the strongest of terms of things that might kill them? Having your stomach as your God, putting confidence in the flesh, living for this world. There are two temptations which will take our eyes off the prize. First of all, is legalism, which is the view that unless you jump through this hoop, this religious hoop, whether it's circumcision or baptism or speaking in tongues, they've all been tried. Paul warns us in the strongest way in verse 2. He says, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Legalism takes our eyes off what Christ has already won for us. It says, no, 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 you don't have what he's won for you. Therefore, you've got to jump through the hoops to get it. It takes our eyes off what's already ours. It refocuses our confidence in the flesh. We don't have confidence in Christ. We're having confidence in ourselves, in what we've done. Paul will have none of it. The second temptation is our stomachs, you know, which means wanting everything now, not living the cross, which, yes, accepts suffering now, but eagerly looks to Christ, raising us from the dead to be like him and to be with him. In the end, Paul says rejoicing in the Lord, it's not an option because it's through rejoicing in the Lord, living out the practice of joy, living in the relationship in which we now stand, not one we haven't yet met or attained, but living in what we have now through knowing Christ, it's doing that that we actually stand firm in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again. Rejoice. Father in heaven, please help us to do it. Help us to live lives of grateful acknowledgement of Jesus knowing that we stand in relationship with you because of him. And help us, Father, to forget the things we used to trust in before. Help us to strain towards what's ahead. But help us not to have our stomach as our God, but to live the cross, because after the cross comes resurrection. Help us to rejoice, because you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.